Howdy, everybody. CJ here with episode 215 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And I've got a real good one for you today. I'm talking with fellow history podcaster Alexander Raider von Sternberg, who, aside from having a cool name that sounds like a Marvel Comics supervillain's alter ego, is the host of the podcast History Impossible, which is one of the ones on my short list of history podcasts that A, I listen to myself regularly, and B, that I often recommend to people when they ask me what other history podcasts I listen to aside from my own. And the truth is, I don't listen to that many. I'm kind of a snob, but Alex's podcast, History Impossible, is definitely on that coveted list. Some of you may recall he was kind enough to have me on for an episode of his show back near the beginning of 2020 before the year started to really show its colors and go off the rails. And now, fittingly, as we near the end of this endless year, we have come full circle and he is a guest on my podcast. And the main thing we're talking about in this episode is going to be his episode that he came out with about a month ago on the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, commonly referred to as the Spanish flu. And this was a great episode. It's like six, six and a half hours, I think, this episode of History Impossible that we're going to be talking about here. And I just thought it was very well done, well-researched, had a lot of insights. And when I listened to it shortly after it was published, very quickly into the episode, I thought, A, this is possibly one of the most important podcast episodes of any show of this year. And B, I really need to have Alex on the Dangerous History Podcast to talk about this episode of History Impossible. So anyway, that's it for me for introductory blabbering. Let's get to my conversation with Alex von Sternberg of History Impossible. Alex, thank you for taking the time and coming on the Dangerous History Podcast today. Not a problem. I am uh, happy to be here. This actually, I think, is my first uh, being interviewed kind of a situation um, in the podcasting world since I started. So this is fun. Oh, cool. Well, I'm I'm happy to have the honor. Um, you, of course, were kind enough to have me on for an episode of your show, History Impossible, um, a while back. It was and, beginning of 2020. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Before all of the crap started to really hit the fan, I guess <laughs> it's, it's, I, yeah, people should go back and listen to that because I don't think we had any inkling of what was happening when we recorded that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'd been meaning to have you on to, you know, have you on my show for a while. And of course, over the kind of summer, early fall, we sort of asynchronously collaborated on that, um, History on Fire episode. Oh, that was that we fun. did segments for. Yeah, yeah. That, that was really cool. But when you came out with your episode, I guess not quite a month ago about the quote unquote Spanish flu pandemic, um, and I listened to that. I think I, I think I probably listened to about half of it the first day it came out, and then the other half the second day. So um, I kind of binged it in in podcast terms, and I was hooked right away. Uh, I've listened to a fair number of episodes of your show. I, I have not listened to all of them, but 
you know, your show is, is on the relatively small list of history podcasts that I listen to regularly. I'm actually kind of a snob when it comes to history podcasts. Yeah. I listened so, to your I listened to your conversation with Sam Davis and you guys were talking about that and yeah you you both of you guys are like on my small list as well. Yeah, so. well uh, I'm 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 happy to hear that but um you know this episode there's a number of your episodes that that um you know I've really liked that I've listened to but this one in particular in part because of its timeliness uh but also just in terms of the the quality and um and the depth and all of that I mean you know, it, it, it's over six hours long. So like just, <laughs> just right there, you completely have my respect. I think the longest episode I've ever done of my show ran about four and a half hours. And that was, that, your, was, that a, was your civil war finale, right? Uh, that, and then um, that one Wilson episode was also around yes. the same length too. Oh man. Yeah. That's it's, it's rough to go that long. I mean, now granted, I, I was, I, I was ready to make jokes about Daryl Cooper's last episode that he did on Martyr May. That was like eight hours long, but I'm one to talk. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I still haven't listened to that one. I'm only oh boy. It's a, it's I'm a, only like a couple episodes into his Jim Jones thing, because, of course, in, in true Martyr Maid fashion, to tell the story of Jim Jones, he basically tells you the entire story of the radicalism of the 1960s. It's amazing. I mean, I, I will blow smoke up Daryl's ass for that series any day of the week, because that, that thing was, that thing is a true achievement. I think um, it's sort of like your Wilson series. I, I, I see that as like your, I mean, I don't want to downplay how good your uh, uh, civil war series is. Cause I, you know, I, I did talk about that when I interviewed you, but uh, yeah, your Wilson series has, uh, like I said earlier off, uh, off mic, basically red pilled me about Wilson. So well, it's, cool. uh, I, I appreciate that. And there is still a bazillion episodes and a bazillion hours uh, still left to cover on that horrible SOB. Yeah. And I can't wait. <laughs> it's like, it's the best uh, verbal blowtorch I've, I've ever heard about the guy. <laughs> cool. Cool. Well, before we start uh, digging into the Spanish flu and your coverage of all that, just for listeners, of the Dangerous History podcast who aren't familiar with you, uh, could you give us the Cliff Notes version of kind of who you are, your background, and how you came to be doing your podcast? Yeah, sure. Uh, I Well, the funny thing is that I have no credentials in history. I mean, I took classes in college, uh, but I ended up getting a degree in psychology from the University of Minnesota. And uh, though funny enough, uh, I, you know, I guess this is the first time I'm going to say it publicly. I'm I'm once, you know, locked down, start getting... Um, lifted, uh, I'm going to be looking into going, uh, trying to get into grad school for history, um, oh, hoping, wow. hoping to get a master's and maybe eventually a PhD in it because it's, it really is the field that I'm most interested in. Now, I'm sure you could maybe talk me out of getting into academia. <laughs> I know you have your own stories about it, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's sort of, um, uh, just one thing I wanted to bring up, but, uh, I, uh, yeah, I got into history when I was in, uh, high school, actually. And I just, you know, would study it off and on on my own. And um, but my, my primary sort of uh, thing that I was working on for a very long time is I, I uh, was and I guess I still am fiction writer. I've written a couple books, uh, none of which are published like in true fiction writer fashion. I have a bunch of them sitting in files on my computer. And I uh, w- and honestly, I've actually been in the quote unquote podcast game since about 2011. Uh, I've I've done and been on various podcasts. Uh, I was on a gaming, a video game podcast for a while when I was um, 
living in Chicago back in 2011, 2012. Uh, and then I started another podcast talking mostly about um, uh, movies with a friend of mine. Uh, it's still up there called I Just Don't See the Big Deal. Uh, that was a that was a fun thing to do for a while. And then I just got into history podcasting because I actually met uh, Daniele, Daniele Bellelli from History on Fire. I um, when when we both realized we we're both in L.A., he invited me to come, you know, chat with him at Santa Monica College where he teaches. And we chatted for a bit and and he, you know, gave me some advice regarding, you know, how to get into history podcasts and all that. And I started work on it and then flash forward to early 2019, I started dropping episodes and uh, yeah, that's, I, I think that answers the question in a so, meandering way. <laughs> how, how would you describe, um, cause you know, you've done episodes of your podcasts on a pretty, you know, wide array of topics and, you know, you've mentioned to me possible future topics that you'll be covering maybe. And, you know, it's, it's very eclectic, which I like. But like in your own mind, what kind of is history impossible and, and what kind of unifies the various topics that you look into and, and maybe want to look into in the future in terms of like themes and stuff? Yeah, it's um, the, the thing I've sort of noticed, and this uh, came out when I was talking to uh, J.D. Hewitt from the YouTube channel uh, History Underground that I, I tend to take, I, I tend to put on my psychology cap uh, with these episodes and, and really try to get into like the psychological motivations of, of the, of the people and figures I cover. But uh, honestly, I think the only real unifying thing is just, what do you call it? Moments or people or, or just things in history that people don't really think about. Like they don't realize Oh, this is actually, you know, how things turned out. Like, like, how can I, I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, well, the first episode I did, which admittedly has a cheesy name, the original Donald Trump, that was inspired by a talk I watched Neil Ferguson give where he talked about how Trump was not Hitler. Trump was just another, you know, crude populist demagogue in the vein of this guy, Dennis Kearney, uh, in the 1870s. So basically, it's sort of like what what I sort of think helps unify these um, these episodes is this idea that that we that like when you hear people say we're living in unprecedented times. Well, yes, in some ways, but in other cases, not really. I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Is one of my favorite you know cheesy sayings, and I and I'm not saying history repeats itself because it doesn't, but I think there are trends that repeat themselves, and there are things that you would think had never happened before, but they actually have. That seems to be a, a unifying theme I've noticed in the stories I've covered. Some stories, though, are just fun. Like my the the one I did on uh, Simo Haiha, the White Death of uh, the um, uh, the sniper, the best sniper in history, as far as we know, in the Winter War against the Soviets. That's just a fun story. So, I mean, in some cases, I think it's just like more of the hipster mentality I have, where I'm just like. Like, uh, th this is the, the like, you don't really know about the actual cool story. The real good sniper wasn't Chris Kyle. It was this Finnish guy in 1939. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, yeah. You know, that that's an episode of your show I have not listened to yet, but oh, I've damn. been like, it's been on my, it's been on my list, 
you know, forever, but I've gotten so backlogged in podcasts because sure. I haven't been commuting to and from work since March, you know, cause I've been working <laughs> yeah. from home since March. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So that was a huge amount of my weekly podcasting hours was mm-hmm. 45 minutes each way commute. So, you know, now I, I listen to podcasts like when I'm working out or doing chores or running or whatever. Um, but man, it seems like I look at my feed, you know, on my, my iTunes podcast app. And it's like, there's all this great stuff I have not gotten to yet. Yeah. And then you have to add on to that, like, you know, other apps like Luminary and Spotify, you know, yeah, like yeah. Dan- Danielli's was getting a little backlog for me too, for a while, but, um, but yeah. And by the way, just want to say his recent two-parter about his um, family fighting against the fascists in world war two. So oh, yeah. good. So okay. fun. I haven't listened so, to that yet either. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I, I hope that makes sense when I, it's really hard for me to explain like what unifies these stories on my podcast. Cause I think back on all that and I'm just like, what the hell do they have to do with each other? They really don't have anything to do with each other, but they, it's just, I think what I, the only thing I can sort of paint as a uh, picture for the only sort of thing I can paint a picture of, I think is what motivates me to cover these stories seems to be the same thing, which is to say, you wouldn't think, I think seems to be the phrase that I, that I latch onto a lot. You wouldn't think that this happened, but it did. And here is the story about it. But yeah, as time has gone on, I mean, I don't really know where this, where these, um, where this podcast is going. I'm just telling stories that I really like. I think that seems to be the, I'm unfortunately it's a boilerplate answer, but that's pretty much the best I can give you for that. I think it's just the stories I want to tell. Okay. Well, so with your Spanish flu episode, I'm assuming that the the inspiration to research that story and, and do this giant podcast episode on it, I'm assuming that it's because of the COVID-19 pandemic. What tipped you off? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I figure there's like, you know, 99.9% chance my intuition is correct there. So yeah, yeah exactly. Um, um, yeah, because, yeah. you know, I, I myself, when this whole thing started, I, I grabbed a few books and articles and things on the especially at the beginning when we didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, at all how, how lethal this was going to be. And they were giving us all these worst case scenario things that ended up being wildly off. You know, I was like, in part because, well, maybe I'll do some podcasting about it. And I still might at some point, but, yeah. um, but also just out of, out of like curiosity, well, you know, one of the last major global pandemics, like, well, how did it play out? Right. So, you know, I, I, Grabbed a few books, the, um, what is it? The Great Influenza. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, and, and a couple of others, um, some of which I know you referenced in your episode. Pale Rider by Laura Spinney. That's a really yeah, good that one. one. I think I got it, but I haven't read it yet. It's a great book. I mean, just in general, it's a great book. I would recommend it. Okay. Yeah. So, so was that your, your initial kind of beginning of looking into the topic was just sort of, well, there's a global pandemic. Yeah. It, and that, it, Cause you, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me, how little the Spanish flu up until maybe this year mm-hmm. was, was talked about at all, like from the time it happened to now, it did seemingly get kind of flushed down a memory hole. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the argument that gets made a lot, and I think this is true, is that it happened during World War I. So you're just going to, that's going to naturally happen. The, the high drama of global conflict is going to outweigh the, and I, I guess you could call it low drama of getting sick and dying a horrible death. I mean, but I think that that speaks to something much deeper about pandemics in general, because generally speaking, people don't really want to talk about it after it's over. Because as I said in my episode, 
with pandemics, there are no winners and losers like there is in war. Everyone's a loser. It's just misery and awfulness and all that you have left afterward is heartbreak and trauma. I mean, the story of Pedro Nava comes to mind immediately. I mean, that story just, I mean, I don't know if you could tell when I was telling it in the actual podcast, that story breaks my fucking heart that he like was just this 15 year old kid, starry eyed in love with this beautiful girl who just withered away and died while he was withering away and didn't die. Like it's like, there's, there's no winner in that story. It's just like awfulness. And it obviously stuck with him to the point where he shot himself in the head in the 1980s. Like he just, it's just, there's, it's, it's hard to like really emphasize any sort of like, I, I tried to emphasize the victories of the Spanish flu as in, you know, diagnosing it, curing it, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's just a really miserable, awful story. In a lot of, and I think that's the case with most plagues, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, thinking about obviously there have been countless epidemics and pandemics and plagues and whatever throughout human history. And it's interesting to think about the way in which, for the most part, they're either ignored in the historical, you know, in the historiography or, or they're like a side note, you know, to, to another yeah. big thing like a war or whatever, right? Cause think about it, the only, the only other instances I can think of that really do get a fair amount of attention. One is of course the black plague right, in, in medieval Europe that that one somehow always gets a big spotlight in a way that others don't. And then the only other one is uh, the, you know, the various diseases that, that annihilated the native Americans. And yeah. that didn't get coverage until pretty recently. It's only in like the last yeah. you know few decades or whatever that that has really gotten the attention it deserves. You know, if you look at the older history coverage of it, it was more yeah. like the conquest of the Indians in war mm-hmm. uh, by, by the white settlers and, and the disease issue was often just, you know, not part of the story. Yeah. And a lot of it actually, and to be fair, it's not just a sort of psychological distance we put ourselves at. I mean, I think that is like the big reason, but I think a lot of it also is just because we didn't really understand what a pandemic was until the Spanish flu. Like we, and, and even after that, actually, like we never, like, as I covered also, we did, I mean, we knew what a virus was by 1892 because of, I'm blanking on his name, but that Russian scientist figured it out. He, he theorized it that, um, or hypothesized it rather that something that wasn't a bacterium was causing disease. Right. But that, that was really about all they knew though, right? I mean, exactly. they, didn't, they didn't really know what a virus was. They just kind of knew there had to be some other thing exactly. aside from fungi and bacteria that was even smaller that could cause certain diseases. But like, that's about as far as it seems like their real understanding of viruses was. Absolutely. Yeah. And it wasn't until I believe it was 1932 or 1938. Those are very different dates, but uh, it was in the 1930s that the electron microscope was invented. And then they were able to prove the existence of viruses. Um, though again, uh, they did essentially prove it with the diagnosis of the Spanish flu. It's just that they couldn't see it because they knew that it wasn't a bacterial disease, uh, when they actually were able to get like lung tissue to examine. Um, because if you get, if you extract lung tissue from somebody who has a bacterial infection, you're able to see the bacteria under a regular microscope, but all the stuff they were able to get no bacteria and like nothing out of the ordinary, at least. Yeah, it it just still is is very striking to me when you think about how World War One gets all this attention, right? Mm-hmm. The biggest war in human history up to that point, and yet this flu uh, pandemic killed a lot more people than World War One did, yeah. right? And so you would think just going by body count alone, and it and it touched a lot more countries, right? Because it touched yeah. virtually the whole world. 
including many countries that were not participating in World War World War One. So it, it just is so interesting that like if you looked at a typical kind of history textbook, either a world history textbook or a US history textbook or whatever, and, and if you were looking at say like the chapter on the World War One era, there'll be page after page after page related to World War One. And like at most there'll be at most there'll be a few paragraphs. A blur. On this flu pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and sometimes I, less than that. Sometimes it, yeah. a sentence or two. Sometimes I won't even be mentioned. <laughs> you know, yeah. like even though it arguably, and we can get into this in a little bit later because it is a whole other subject, but it it arguably altered the course of the war itself. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And absolutely. This is not to throw shade at him, uh, but Dan Carlin's guilty of this in his World War One series and Blueprint for Armageddon. Like he he does bring up the Spanish flu, but it is maybe for about twenty minutes in the whole grand scheme of things, because, and, and again, it's not to throw shade at him. I think it's because of what you're saying that there just isn't that much written about it that goes hand in hand with the literature about world war one. It It's just, it's a blur at best. You have to get the specific books related to the Spanish flu, like the great more, uh, not the great mortality. It's uh, the, the great influenza, the uh, pale rider and uh, pandemic 1918 and so on. Like you have to get right. those books. And the funny thing is those books, they talk about World War One, but they only kind of mention it off to the side. There really is no comprehensive thing that covers both. It's very interesting. Yeah. Well, so could you just kind of give us a brief sort of big picture sketch? I mean, obviously everybody should go listen to your uh, six hours plus episode on this, but <laughs> just, just sort of by way of introduction to, to any listeners. I mean, as of 2020, a lot of reasonably intelligent people are familiar with a little bit of, of the 1918 flu pandemic, but still, you know, a lot of listeners, if they haven't read some of those books, you mentioned, if they haven't listened to your podcast episode, uh, they, they probably don't have like a really great, just kind of vague sketch even of, of what it really was. So can you give us kind of like a, a, a big picture sketch? It basically was a really bad flu. <laughs> no, there's more than that, obviously. Uh, the um, uh, It basically was something that our bodies, the human body, had never encountered before that had likely formed in the guts of ducks and geese in France in 1915, 1916. And because of the conditions created by the First World War uh, and the global nature of it, that allowed this novel disease to spread very rapidly. There's this notion that it started in Kansas. I'm sure that's the, I'm sure you've even heard that theory. It's the most popular theory. The right. problem is that's not necessarily true. It, it is true that it, that in America, it started in Kansas at Camp Funston. But the problem is there's so much evidence out there that shows that there were outbreaks of some kind of respiratory disease in France in 1916, 1917, there were some outbreaks of disease in China, in the Shanxi province in 1917. And the thing is, all of these locations are connected by the First World War. So uh, because the, in China, you have the Chinese Labor Corps being employed by, I believe it was Great Britain. They're, they're moving all across the world to be taken to um the front lines to help build trenches and artillery and so forth. So they're carrying it all across the world. They're carrying it into North America. And in France, people are getting it from, you know, just being in close quarters with one another in this area. So basically you have this like sort of, it, it's hard to describe beyond just imagine like a bunch of simultaneous explosions happening at once. 
and uh, they they just start spreading all over the place, be, like at a rapid pace because of that. And then eventually, the entire world is engulfed in this what becomes essentially one giant explosion of virus. And this virus, like I said, had never been encountered before, so it was particularly virulent with uh, young people as well. Uh, and that was thanks largely to something called a cytokine storm, which it has to do with a genetic defect that one in 10,000 people have, I think, where people will just like they, they, they their first uh, immune response doesn't work. So then they just get a bunch of inflammation going on and it just wipes them out almost immediately. So that's why you see a lot of people dying at a young age and a healthy age too. Yeah, that that's one of the things that's so so unusual and so striking, you know, when you start to learn about this particular pandemic yeah. is that it seems like it disproportionately killed the people who in most pandemics are the most likely to make it, right? Yeah. The the kind of people in their healthy young people in their 20s and 30s, whereas it's more common that that a pandemic uh, hits the the elderly hardest, like like COVID seems to be doing. Yeah, uh, and also then there's some like other flus that will also hit very young people. Although COVID uh, doesn't seem to be hitting the very young very hard at all most of the time. Yeah, children seem to be completely unaffected by COVID, and yeah, yeah um, it's very rare that they have a severe case and, of symptoms. And that's where I would say, if you want to make a like a direct parallel to the Spanish flu, definitely that because. The amount, the sheer number of children who were left parentless, like that's something I didn't really talk about that much in my episode, but that is a big thing that, that I actually have to wonder because I, there wasn't even that much written about it, but there was a lot of orphans made by the Spanish flu. And I got to wonder if that's going to happen with COVID. I, I, it doesn't seem to be very similar in that sense, but in the sense that children are just relatively unaffected by it seemed to right. be, seems to be very, uh, that, that's a striking parallel to me. And I think that just has to do with, you know, a lot of things going on within the body that, that I don't understand. I'm not going to pretend to understand. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, well, one thing I've, I've wondered about, and maybe you have an opinion on this is looking at this flu in 1918, 1919. And you already kind of mentioned, you know, part of what happened to spread it so far and so wide was the war itself, that you had people being mobilized from all over the, all over the world, yeah. brought together in these terrible close quarters conditions in the trenches of Europe, and then, you know, eventually being demobilized and shipped back home to wherever. Is it, is it possible that, uh, do you think, and neither of us are doctors or biologists <laughs> or virologists, so we're just rank amateurs on this I'm a rank amateur about everything, man. So don't worry about it. (laughs) Well, but, but just sort of speculating, like, do you think it's possible that if, if this disease had, you know, jumped from goose shit to people or whatever, um, without the conditions of the war, is it possible there might've just sort of been like a localized epidemic that would have burned itself out and, and maybe it wouldn't have become global without the war? Probably. Like like, like whether it originated in China or France or Kansas. Yeah. Either way, regardless of which of those theories is actually the truth, that it might have just like affected a region. Yeah, because people didn't travel back back then as much as they do now. Obviously, there was no air. There was no air travel at all. Yeah, <laughs> like I think that's like the the fact that it got as bad as it did. Like if we had the Spanish flu today, but like the same lip somehow the same limitation. Let's just say that we had air travel back then. 
Like, but to, so therefore there's like all the same limitations they had of, you know, diagnosis and treatment and everything. If they had an air travel that could have easily wiped out a billion people. I would, I would, I would just throw that number out there. I mean, I can't even imagine how much worse it would have been and how much more rapid it would have been. But yeah, I think that without the war, it probably could have remained localized. I mean, there was no vaccine. There was no flu vaccine back then. So like it, it very well could have burned itself out through herd immunity within these localized populations. Now, I don't know. Obviously, like you said, we're just sort of, you know, we're rank amateurs, you know, guessing here. But I think if there hadn't been a war, the spread would have probably been much more limited. I mean, China has, for all of its history, been very uh, affected by epidemics throughout throughout its history. And it could have just become a blip in you know Chinese history at that point. I mean, I, also at that point, China was undergoing, you know, convulsions of, you know, revolution and whatnot, the fall of the Qing dynasty. So no one would even would even have probably noticed it if it had just stayed localized. Or if it had just stayed localized in France, you know, it I don't know. It might have spread in Europe, to be honest, because Europe is so small, all things considered. So that maybe that would have happened. But I think in terms of like the bigger locations like America and China, I think, yeah, it probably would have stayed relatively localized. Yeah. Another thing that really jumps out as one starts to learn about this flu pandemic is, you know, not just this, this tragic thing that it actually is hitting a lot of times the healthiest people the hardest because it's sort of jujitsuing their immune system against them almost, but also the, and, and you, you know, quoted a number of sources very vividly on this, the way that people died, like what it looked like Ugh, and, yeah. and, and, you know, sounded like, and must've smelled like, I mean, it's just horrific. It's not just like they're, you know, kind of quietly coughing and then having trouble breathing and then just kind of going to sleep. They're dying in really horrific, agonizing, ugly sorts of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I'll never forget when I learned about the like people's blood coagulating within their bodies and turning into black tar essentially like and to the point where this italian doctor like he is the the he was trying to take a blood sample and the needle got stuck in a patient's arm because the blood was in the vein because the blood was so thick at that point like that just that that still haunts me honestly just thinking about it but like yeah it it was a nasty nasty way to go and i'm i'm not trying to downplay you know what covid is doing to people because it sounds like it's very nasty in a very similar way but just not on the scale of this i mean people were just the the nastiness of the actual infection is i think what i i really wanted to hit on that because i want people to realize that that sickness is i think sickness is our greatest enemy above all else i'm not trying to get all high and mighty and philosophical here but it is way more of a danger it is way more of a catalyzing force i think than any ideology any politics any war anything i mean it's it's the worst thing that can happen to a person and when it happens on that scale it does tend to you know create outward ripples that have nothing to do with the pandemic ultimately but I, I think that to sell that idea, you have to really hit home how disgusting and awful 
this sickness was. So that's sort of why I like, I focused on those sources and accounts of like, you know, blood and vomit being, you know, creating, like creating a slick surface on, on these hospital ships and stuff like that. Just, you really have to get into how disgusting the whole thing is to really understand how big of an effect this is going to create on someone psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. Because before, you know, I, a few months back, read a few books on it and then listened to your episode more recently. I always just had it in my head. Like as a history guy, I was, I was intellectually aware Mm -hmm. of the influenza pandemic and I knew, you know, the basic facts like that it killed millions of people and killed more people than world war one did. But I had never looked into the details of like how horrific the symptoms were uh, to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so I just had it in my head that it was basically like the regular old flu that, you know, we get every year, just, just amped up, you mm-hmm. know, but, but the same basic symptoms. Right. So I'm just like, Oh, it's just a worse version of that. Right. And then, man, when you start to to read some of the primary sources and eyewitness accounts and whatever of just how, how gross it, and everything it was, it's like, it's, it's a whole next level it's not just like oh fever and weakness and um coughing just worse it's like no you're you're coughing up blood uh your skin is turning blue black like just all this (sighs) stuff yeah and and, well and also it's it's actually kind of incentivized me to um and i haven't done done this yet i mean because i'm working on other stuff obviously but i really want to start looking into you know because people die from seasonal flu every year thousands of people die from seasonal flu every year. Now, granted, a lot of it has to do with, you know, pre-existing conditions and, you know, weakened immune systems and so on and so forth. But I feel like that if we start looking into like how people die from the flu, it's going to feel very similar to this. Now, maybe not on, maybe not like in terms of how disgusting it is, but I I get the feeling that that this is just a sort of reality that I think humanity likes to turn away from to bring it back to what we were talking about before, about why people don't talk about this is because we just don't like to think about disease because I think at some level we psychologically recognize that this is the most destructive thing that we can face short of like a, an asteroid impact, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the one episode I did uh, in my civil war series, the, the grunts perspective, yes. the grunts eye perspective episode where I talked yes. about that in the civil war that, you know, soldiers on both sides were more likely to die of disease than they were to die of musket balls or cannonballs or whatever. Yeah. And that there's very few books about the Civil War that really talk about this. I had to kind of go digging to find a few that really dug into that whole question. Because well, remind it's me, just was not there... sexy, right? That No, that exactly. These guys yeah, yeah. go off to war, these, these young 18-year-old, you know, farm boys going off to fight for their country or whatever. And there's actually a better chance that they'll drink some contaminated water and yeah. diarrhea themselves to death, yeah. which is not exactly as glorious of a death as, you know, taking a musket ball in, in the heat of battle or something. No. And, and well, and, and remind me is, were there, I'm, I'm assuming there were localized epidemics during the civil war on both sides, right? Oh, was yeah. there uh, like what, what kind of, but there was no like massive scale. You can't call it a pandemic. So it'd have to be the whole world, but, uh, or, well, I don't remember how you define pandemic, but yeah, I, I guess it would be epidemic. I think that's yeah. when it's more of like a regional thing, but not global. Yeah, um, there there definitely were, you know, various outbreaks of diseases. Part of the problem, too, is with the Civil War, medicine was even so much less oh. developed than it was for the Spanish flu yeah. that, you know, they, they weren't always able to accurately identify and differentiate between uh, different diseases. I, I do remember, I think, reading that 
one of the most common ways people died of illness was basically the various illnesses you get from drinking, you know, contaminated water. Yeah. That those sorts of things like where basically you shit yourself to death. Yeah. Uh, and dehydrate yourself. That's and, just awful. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, definitely yeah. there were, there were, there were flus and there were, mm-hmm. you know, other tuberculosis probably. And who knows? Yeah. When. Yeah. And then yeah, STDs yeah. sometimes too, uh, when they were around yeah. you know, the prostitutes and whatever. Yeah. Cause there were like, um, that, that's an interesting uh, fact. I remembered that like, uh, I think you brought, I think you talked about it, how like prostitutes would follow regiments. Like it would just, it would sort of be like a caravan of prostitutes because they were like, Oh, good business. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the way to think about the, the larger armies, you know, marching around is basically it's a mobile town. Exactly. Because it's, you know, 70,000 people or something like this. And you know, that's they're a all... great way to spread disease too. Oh yeah. Like yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a town. Ta- I mean, that's, that's sort of the cost of civilization. If you want to get really deep into that, you know, like that, right. the cause of civilization is higher likelihood of everyone getting sick and dying. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, another thing I really enjoyed about your flu episode was the way you brought in, you know, your psychology background and all that. And really like you didn't, you didn't just tell a narrative story. You also kind of analyzed a bit deeper as far as like the Thank psychological you. and sociological ramifications of this whole thing. So could you talk a little bit about like some of the, the psychological, you know, theories and, and literature and um, like systems analysis type stuff mm. uh, that you use to, to dig into the Spanish flu's ramifications. Well, if there's if there are two books that I would recommend more than any other book regarding this um this subject, it would actually be uh one is a book by Chris Clearfield and um I'm forgetting his first name, but his last name is Tilksick called Meltdown. And that's about tightly coupled systems and how like, you know, g- how meltdowns as we call them are the result of very complex systems. And I just simply looked at that as a great way to understand how society is a tightly coupled system. So it, it once it like falls apart, it's, you know, going to fall apart really hard. Uh, but I'd also recommend contagion and chaos by Andrew Price Smith, who um, unfortunately I just found out he died back in 2010, I think. So, but uh, he was a, he's a, he was a political scientist Um who wrote this book contagion and chaos that, that really brought together all the psychological literature regarding pandemics, not just about the Spanish flu, but about, uh, you know, all major pandemics up to, I believe he covered the, um, I think he got up to the, uh, the, the swine flu of 2009 or SARS COVID one rather, maybe it was the other one in 2002. But anyway, uh, what, what those two sources really, uh, revealed to me was one, how fragile a major system is like a society and two, how beholden to individual psychology or social psychology rather uh, that system actually is because when a pandemic hits, the only real sure thing is not, it's not the lethality of it because that's never sure. The only sure thing is the psychological effects of it and the psychological effects of it are a diminished capacity to make rational decisions like decision-making skills go in the toilet when something like a pandemic happens. A lot of other things can make that happen too, but a pandemic guarantees poor decision-making on the part of individuals. And it just gets worse when you start factoring in things like 
psychological uh, or emotional trauma from, you know, losing loved ones or not knowing what's happening in the future. I mean, it's, it's basically like what I'm describing is stuff that is very real for a lot of people every day, but just apply to everybody. Like that's the problem is that you're essentially when you, when you have a pandemic going on, you are more to the point infecting everybody with mood disorders. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. And also for many nations in the world, not all, but many, they had also been in the biggest, bloodiest war in human history for several years. So already a lot of the world wasn't psychologically in a good place. (laughs) I mean, they've been bombarded with wartime propaganda for years. They've, uh, some of them have gone and fought in the war and gotten maimed or psychologically destroyed or both. Yeah. Um, Everybody, you know, who had been uh, everybody from countries that had been in the war a long time had, you know, lost a loved one or, you know, lost a parent or a husband or had someone come home missing their legs and all this sort of stuff. So we're already talking like most of the the major nations of the world at the time were already pretty off the rails yeah. as far as just, you know, what we could assume the average person's psychology was at. And yeah. then, and then yeah. you drop this ridiculously uh, horrific disease into the mix. I mean, you know, looking at the, all of the psychological craziness of 2020, which is you know pretty <laughs> messed up in a lot of the world, yeah. including our own wonderful country. but. But like how much worse if if World War Three had oh, been going man. on for like three or four years and if COVID was, you know, as as lethal as the Spanish flu was, like how much even worse would all of our mindsets be? And how much more vulnerable would we be uh to, you know, listening to the absolute worst possible leaders and all that sort of Absolutely. stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing too, is not not to jump ahead too much, but um it's not to say that like the funny thing is uh, uh, someone like Hitler never mentioned the Spanish flu at all. Like that, which is very interesting, but uh, I think that speaks more to, again, the whole desire to just put it behind us because I think the desire to put it behind us was even stronger with the Spanish flu than with other pandemics because of the war, because it's like you have this war ripping the world apart and then the pandemic hits it's sort of like, what next? Like, where's the asteroid? And actually, to be honest, uh, you know, well, wait, no, that was 10 years earlier. I was going to say there was the Tunguska event, but that was 10 years earlier. But yeah, like, what's next? Like, at that point, it feels like God is punishing you, you know? So I understand why people suddenly, like, turn to really fatalistic thinking after the pandemic started to hit. Though, funny enough, uh, belief in God did go down after the First World War. And to be perfectly honest, the flu probably brought that faith down a little bit too, because like, why the hell would you want to believe in God after getting hit successively with war, loss of loved ones, you know, flu, loss of more loved ones all and all that, you know? So I, yeah, yeah. A, a, a disease that, you know, seemed to kill so indiscriminately and, yeah, I mean that's that's one of those things that's really hard to square with any notion of of cosmic justice, at least in this life. Absolutely, um, because yeah, I mean it's not like it's striking down only uh, people who quote unquote deserve it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can I can see how that would shake a lot of people's a lot of people's faith. Yeah, and the 
and, and to bring up your boy Woodrow Wilson, uh, oh, like yeah. his handling of the flu, or rather lack thereof, is like is another thing that just has boggled my mind a little bit. He didn't even talk about it. He never talked about it, as far as I know, at least. Like he he I didn't he like downplay it altogether. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I could be m- missing I can, something, but I yeah. don't think he ever made any like official public statement about it at all. Yeah. And for sure, he, his view was we can't slow down, let alone stop our shipment of troops yeah. to Europe. And we can't make a big deal out of it in public because that'll damage public opinion and morale. Mm-hmm. And we can't um, do things like cancel the big parades to raise uh, to to sell war bonds because that'll harm the war effort. And so, I mean, you know, we'd probably agree that a lot of the government response to COVID was irrational and, you know, overblown relative to what the actual threat was, but definitely with the U S government in the Spanish flu, it was the opposite extreme. It was like making no, no attempt to do things like shut down mass gatherings and things like this. Yeah. In fact, they were encouraging mass gatherings for, for like war parades and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And that doesn't, you know, see, okay. You know what though? I think we can both agree. There probably is a little bit of cosmic justice because Wilson got the flu. <laughs> yeah. Although he survived. So it's, <laughs> it's not that much justice. But it did apparently like, uh, well, uh, it, it influenced his, um, well, remind me what was going on with him. Cause I know that he was susceptible to strokes. Like, did he just have like a weakened like constitution or like, what, what, what was his deal? What did he have going on? Yeah. He had a lot of health issues. I mean, okay. he had uh hypertension and I think it already had a couple of strokes before yeah. world war one. And he had a number of other kind of health issues off and on and whatever. So he definitely, you know, had, had plenty of pre-existing issues and whatever like that. So, you know, it, it's just a shame the flu couldn't have killed him. Right. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure the flu killed millions of people around the world who were far more deserving uh, of, of life than Wilson was. Right. It's like the yeah. old Gandalf line. Right. Many, many deserve uh, life who get death or whatever the hell he said to Frodo when they were, uh, you know, looking at, at uh, Smeagol. Yeah. <laughs> and then he said, can you give it to them? I believe right. all I remember, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, well, and that I actually, you know, I did, you know, I, I threw uh through a bit of a, I'm not going to say a shout out. I think I just cited you in my podcast about like how much did the flu affect Wilson? And I like how you put it where you essentially echoed what my whole theme throughout that episode was, which is, I don't know how much the flu changed history, but it didn't help. You know what I mean? Like with Wilson, right. it it might not have kept him. It, it might not have been the reason why the Treaty of Versailles was so lopsided, but it certainly didn't help because, you know, he was fucked up, to put it lightly, by the flu. Like it, it sounds right. like it destroyed him in a lot of ways. Because um, when did he die? Remind me. Um, I want to say maybe around two years after he got out of office. So maybe like around 1922, give okay. or take, 23. Yeah. And all of his aides and people who worked with him said that after he got the flu, he was a changed man. Like he just had compl- like his personality was like totally like it was not all there. So I, I just, 
again, I, I liked, I like how you put it where you said, I don't know what, how much it affected him, but it didn't help. And I think uh, that, I, I think that his, well, there, there's so much, I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole to talk about his, his uh, ideals, his 14 points and all that. But like, I think his, there, there was no way that if he had had his way, like if it was just say that he, you know, was dictator over the negotiations, there is no way Germany would have been hit so punitively. I mean, I understand why France wanted to, in particular, be so punitive against Germany. I mean, they they probably would have loved to bring out the guillotine for, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm. And I don't blame them. I really don't. But considering what happened, be- uh, partly because of how punitive the Treaty of Versailles was, I... I, I really kind of wish Wilson had got his way <laughs> in this case, though, if, th- if that oh, makes oh, sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I, 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 I think his initial instinct of peace without victory was good. Yeah. Right. If he had actually had a better strategy of how to make that happen politically and how to actually implement that overall ideal. Um, but he was just so fixated on the league of nations that he was willing to sacrifice any other consideration to make sure the league of nations happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whereas to me, the rational thing would have been for his number one priority to be uh, to have a fair piece. That's not punitive. And like, like if I was in his shoes, that would be my number one value to which I might be willing to, you know, sacrifice or compromise some of the other goals that I had. Um, Because I, I would have looked back to, you know, how the great powers of Europe handled the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, right? Which was much more, you know, Napoleon was removed from power, obviously. Yeah. But France didn't lose any territory that it had before the wars. And, you know, they didn't put crippling reparations on the French people or anything like this. Yeah. And, and it led to, you know, mostly a fair amount of peace for much of the 19th century. The, the wars in Europe in the 19th century uh, were all relatively short and relatively not that expensive in lives and money. Mm-hmm. It wasn't perfect, but you know, I think they handled the end of, of the big wars in 1815 way better than they handled the end of world war one. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, it's really tough. And I, and I do like to bring this up a lot in my own podcast that, uh, that I, that we as a people don't get sucked into hindsight bias because it's easy for us right now to say like, Oh, he fucked up. But I, I really do think that I guess I find it hard to accept that, you know, intelligent leaders, quote unquote intelligent, were surprised that things got so out of hand so quickly after the world after the um the war ended because of how they treated Germany. Like I I know it's um again, I I, I kind of understand why people resist talking about how Germany was a victim after World War One because it starts to I mean it that's the same path that Nazi apologists go down, <laughs> but it it really is a case where I think we have to we have to accept the fact that if Germany hadn't been treated so crappily after the war was over, there wouldn't have been a mobilization required for there, there, there wouldn't have been the required mobilization for the Nazis to come to power in 1933. I mean, there's obviously a lot more to it than that, but which I did get into in you know the podcast. But the the punitive treatment of Germany by 
you know, the allies was such a smack in the face. I think that it was sort of, it's sort of, um, it it beggars belief for me that they didn't think something bad was going to happen because of that. Yeah. And there were some people who like, yeah, like John Maynard Keynes of all people who I'm mostly not a fan of his economic theories, but I mean, the, that book that he wrote, yeah, that book that he wrote about how ridiculous this peace treaty was like, he's right on the money. Um, and, and there were some other people at the time who kind of said like, this is really dangerous to, to treat a defeated enemy. This unfairly is basically begging for them to be uh, looking for revenge in a few years. When they get the ability to seek that revenge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me like it really, it, it just made a lot of mainstream German public opinion so much more receptive mm-hmm. to extremist ideas in general right i mean it's not i don't think a coincidence that by the late weimar era the two parties that are you know driving events and whatever are the nazis and the cars exactly yeah and and that's something that i i hope i was able to thread that needle pretty well by by suggesting that if not for the flu and its effects that kind of extreme polarization wouldn't have gotten as extreme. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into, you know, why a society becomes polarized, but I think the poor decision-making that fits into a social psychology because of a pandemic is not, again, it's not going to help. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so for, those who haven't yet listened to your podcast episode, just you start off with kind of the big picture global story of the pandemic, but then uh, kind of in, I don't know, maybe the last third or quarter of the episode, uh, you zoom in on Germany, which is interesting. I hadn't realized how much Germany was like disproportionately harmed by the flu relative to a lot of the other you know, great powers of the time. I hadn't, you know, I, I knew it kind of hit everybody, but I hadn't really fully realized that it seems like it might have it might have hit Germany worse than yeah. most. Well, and there's the um again to bring up uh, Andrew Price Smith again with his book Contagion and Chaos. He actually looked at the data and um and and was able to essentially prove that Germany was hit harder, just in terms of numbers and in terms of uh, locations. And there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it has to do with you know wartime strain, uh, lack of medical professionals in certain areas, and then also when you combine that. With that study done by the New York Federal Reserve that I cited, uh, where it shows that the towns that were hit, the towns and cities that were hit just like really hard by the pandemic seem to disproportionately support the Nazis a lot more, which is very interesting correlation. Again, not causal, but it's very interesting. Um, But yeah, Germany got hit pretty damn hard. Uh, And again, like I I brought this up in the podcast, if you look at uh, Eric Ludendorff's memoirs talking about the effect of the flu on his men, you can very easily just say, oh, well, he was just being a sore loser. But at the same time, what he's claiming is not off, is not too far off. Like the flu did affect his soldiers to the point where the spring offensive that's that I I'm not, you know, really that well versed in World War One military history, but the consensus I've seen with a lot of historians, like military historians, is that if Ludendorff's Spring Offensive of 1918 had worked out, then it probably would have, um, it probably would have at least changed the outcome of the war 
in a pretty significant way. And because he wasn't able to do that because of the flu and bad rations, which exacerbated the flu symptoms, that just kind of guaranteed in a way the outcome of the war to be not in Germany's favor. So there's another factor right there that sort of cemented Germany's fate in a way. Yeah, yeah, because they had recently uh, succeeded in getting Russia to yes. drop out of the war, right, by by shipping Lenin back <laughs> in and kind of sponsoring a commie yeah. revolution. And so they had all those divisions freed up from the Eastern Front to transfer to throw at the West. And yeah, then the flu happened to hit them. And they were, you know, I guess they and and their allies, like like the Austrian Empire, unlike Britain, France, the United States, etc., the central powers were under total blockade by the British and by this point, American navies, yeah. right? So they, they were keeping out everything in violation of international law. Even at the time they were keeping out, not just war materials, they were keeping out food. They were keeping out medicine. They were keeping out, you know, basic yeah. supplies. Of and all that's kinds. just going to make the flu worse. I mean, it's going to make the effects of the flu worse. Yeah. Because, you know, poor nutrition is a very good way to get like a higher lethality rate when a pandemic hits. Yeah, yeah. Well, even before the Spanish flu, I know, just because I've, I've looked a little bit into the effects of the blockade on Germany, even before the Spanish flu, excess deaths in Germany amongst the civilian population yeah. were up because of malnourishment and lack of medical supplies and various yeah. things. So just in general, uh, the, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, sure, in, in Britain and France, may have been dealing with some shortages and things like this, but not to the degree that Germany no. was. Yeah. And that's the thing is, uh, you know, they like people might want to poo poo the notion of Germany being seen as a victim in this case, but I mean, they were a victim. <laughs> they were made up. They were victimized pretty hard uh, by these things that you're listing. And so it kind of, in my mind is very understandable why Germans were so bitter after the war was over and why they would turn to forces they would regret to turn to. I'm not saying it's okay that they turn to those forces, obviously, but I understand why they would. Yeah. Your, your podcast episode was the first time that the connection in my mind uh, was really made between the flu and kind of Weimar Germany's dysfunctions, mm -hmm. right? Because I had always thought of it primarily in terms of the the unfairness of the Versailles Treaty, which obviously was a big deal. Uh, and then the other things that I had always thought of were Germany's economic problems, right? How in the early 20s, they had oh, hyperinflation. Boy, yeah. <laughs> and then in the late 20s, they got kicked in the teeth by the Great, by the great yep. Depression, right? Just as they were starting to kind of recover from the hyperinflation. Yeah. And so I had always kind of seen it as those were the two main things that kind of defeat in the war in general, but particularly how it was handled. And then uh, the hyperinflation followed, you know, some years later by the Great Depression. But, you know, it was like a light bulb went off in my head when I heard you connecting the flu to it. I'm like, oh, there's even more of a perfect storm. Yeah. Than I realized. Well, and the thing is, and those things are big. Don't get me wrong. If you don't have the hyperinflation, you don't have the Great Depression, you're probably not going to have the Nazis. I mean, I think that that's, you know, kind of clear. Uh, however, the conditions that allowed for the Nazis to rise to power because of those things were created, I believe, at least uh, with the defeat of Germany, the Spanish flu hitting them so hard and the political chaos that resulted that was only so chaotic because of the conditions set by the loss of the war and the flu. I mean, that's like. That's a really, that's a sort of like, I mean, I, 
I, I tend to speak in bungled sentences off the cuff, as I'm sure you've noticed, but I, uh, that's, it does sound kind of bungled, but that is the best way to describe what happened in Germany in 1918, 1919. I really don't think the chaos would have been as bad uh, between the two warring factions uh, in early Weimar Germany, the, the first six months, namely, if not for the Spanish flu. I really do think that. It's very hard for me to imagine otherwise. And, you know, and, and obviously, you know, that, uh, well, well, what do you, what, what, what do you think about uh, like th- those first six months? Cause I really do think those first six months were key. Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, you had the Kaiser abdicating, yeah. right? So you have regime change and then it's a question of what's going to replace it and whatever replaces it, are they going to be able to establish themselves in terms of legitimacy mm-hmm in the minds of enough of the population that the new uh, German government can get its, its feet under itself. And this is going to be the German government that is going to be ending the war, Yeah, which right off the bat, that's going to be attacked by the right because the, the right, those who, who wanted to keep the Kaiser or who wanted at least some more kind of like hard, right militaristic thing to replace the Kaiser. They're going to, they're going to blame Germany losing the war, not on Germany losing the war. They're going to blame it on the, the new government basically yeah. capitulating. Yeah. And, and so you've got that. And then you've got the, the attack from, you know, the far left because the Weimar government was basically kind of center left. Yes. Yes. The social Democrats specifically. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, you know, another thing you covered that I, I knew a little bit about, but not a whole lot was the Spartacist uprising. That's one of those things, you know, that I've read about it in a few kind of books on World War One and, and, and European history. And I can remember a little bit about it in a German history class I took probably 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, so I, I knew the names of like Rosa Luxemburg. Leapnecht. And, uh, yeah. Le- yeah. Leapnecht. What a piece of work that guy was. <laughs> Just. Not a fan. Yeah, of him. <laughs> yeah, I, it, yeah. I kind of vaguely knew, you know, who these people were and, and what the Spartacist uprising was, but I had never um, encountered as much detail as you went into on that. So, can you give us kind of like the 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 short version of the Spartacist uprising? And all sure. That? Uh, well, specifically the the people involved. I can. I mean, Rosa Luxemburg was basically just the propagandist for the Spartacists, who were. The radical faction of the, I believe they were called the um, International Socialists. I think I'm getting that wrong, actually. But they were the radical faction of the Socialist Party, which helped form the initial Weimar government uh, with the Social Democrats. I actually kind of feel bad for the main Socialist Party because they were tarred, essentially, by the radical actions and rhetoric of the Spartacists. But uh, the Spartacists were led by this guy, Karl Liebknecht, and he... I, I don't really know what – I think he really was a true believer. I think he was ideologically possessed. I don't think he was just some cynic looking for power. I mean he was looking for power, but I mean I don't think he was a cynic. I think he really did believe what he was doing. But he immediately, as soon as like the Kaiser left, he just he just went up into the palace and declared this is a new socialist republic, even though that was never agreed upon. Nobody He just said it. And then that sort of, in my view, sort of sealed his fate in a way, but also sealed the fate of Germany being locked into what I like to call permanent deadlock, uh, political deadlock, because they, at that point, the lines got drawn 
like in other words, the the social democrats were now facing off against a rival government as far as Liebknecht was concerned, at least, but as far as the social Democrats were concerned. And I think the the best way to describe what Liebknecht liked to do was he would barge into any public gathering involving like, you know, funerals. He did that a lot. But anytime he had a chance to, he would barge into public gatherings and make declarations of the need for the dictatorship of the proletariat, very usual like communist rhetoric from the time. And he would just completely like bulldoze the room (laughs) in so many words. And they, and then of course people responding would get really mad. And then that would just incentivize him and Rosa Luxemburg and the Spartacists to just double down again. He was a master of doubling down. And part of me thinks he knew what he was doing because he knew that by doubling down so much, he was essentially like legitimizing his own uh, power. The problem is though, what he was doing was he was just confirming every caricature and suspicion cast towards the socialists by the social Democrats, the right, everybody who wasn't them. Basically he was essentially digging his own grave is what I'm trying to say. And when he and Rosa Luxemburg were pulled into, you know, pulled into trucks and then executed summarily, then it, it was very, to me, after I was reading about like all of his shenanigans, it just was not surprising. But what he essentially did with the Spartacists and the, and the, um, the radicalization that they uh, were going for is he legitimized extreme overreaction. And the Spartacist uprising, as it was known, or January 1919 uprising, was just sort of the final nail in the coffin. It was, it was when the Spartacists took to the streets basically and started going to war with the government. They started like, I, I, they never had artillery or anything like that. In fact, artillery was used against them, but they just took, you know, rifles and just started, you know, you know, firing at policemen. They occupied buildings, including newspapers. I mean, it was in case it wasn't obvious. I, I was a little bit inspired by all of the, I, I hate to use this term because uh, it, it's poor guy, but the George Floyd riots of, you know, mid 2020. And that's a hell of a legacy, you know, to have riots named after you, but there you go. You know, that was, that was the point where I was like, Oh wait, I have to talk about Weimar Germany as well. I can't just talk about the Spanish flu. I have to talk about how this, you know, affects people ultimately, especially if they've been cooped up. And I think that like, we saw kind of an inkling of that, of a very Weimar looking inkling of what was going on earlier this year. Sorry to, you know, veer into, you know, modern times, but uh, that that sort of I feel like is a very important connecting thread between the two stories. Oh no, I think that's that's a very you know valid connection to make because you know I've been feeling like we're we've got some Weimar yeah. aspects going on in America even before the COVID madness and then the the George Floyd fallout and all that, and it just seems like there's this this mutual escalation by by the extremes, yeah, which you. You explained very vividly in regard to the Spartacist uprising, right? Because it doesn't take long of crazy, violent lefty extremists doing provocative stuff for there to be a reaction. And you get into this this mutual spiral of escalation. And it made me think about some of the things that happened um, over the last you know five months or whatever in certain American cities where you start to get this kind of tit for tat back and forth. Where yep. the the official government 
law enforcement isn't always doing a very good job of kind of keeping basic order in some of these cities. And so you end up with, with almost like informal gangs or militias of, you know, the SJW woke um, Antifa types on one side and then some of the hard right wingers on the other. And yeah, I mean, thankfully it hasn't spiraled too off the rails um, even in the, the, the more nuttier places, but still it seems like it's just, you know, a tinderbox waiting to go up as far as there, there have already been a few incidences that we know of, of kind of tit for tat killing where the militias. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, I mean, definitely, I think the Spartacus situation in early Weimar Germany is a valid comparison in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh, especially in places like Seattle and Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think what will, I mean, to keep it a little contemporary, I, I think what will save America versus Germany is that we're way bigger, you know, <laughs> like I can see localized events happening because they have happened, like you're saying, but I, I don't see the entire nation spiraling in a really awful way, the way Germany did just because of the sheer geographical area we live in. But with that said, uh, we shouldn't pretend that this isn't a big deal. These, these are, this is a big deal. And this is a, a kind of thing that, that we, um, should be taking very seriously, especially when you look at what happened with Weimar Germany, because if you don't, if you don't put a lid on social unrest, and this is weird for me to say, because I am very much not a status type, if, if you will, but if you don't put a lid on social unrest, you're going to guarantee a, in my mind, at least you're going to guarantee a much greater overreaction down the line. And that, and that's what, that's what worries me the most, honestly. Yeah. 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 It's always a danger that things spiral so out of control, go off the rails so much that basically even kind of middle of the road, silent majority type, regular middle-class people start to say, whoever's going to shut this all down and stop the stop the chaos and the violence so we can just you know go to work and go to school and run our businesses um i'm going to support that person and of course a lot of times the that person in question is you know some horribly authoritarian uh type of type of regime yeah i mean and you saw the beginnings of that already in 1919 i mean like christ uh uh frederick ebert and uh scheidemann man like they issued an execution on the spot order after only a couple months of chaos, like execution on the spot, man, that's, that's insane. And, but like, and that's the thing is I kind of feel bad for the social Democrats. They were put in a really awful position by clowns like Leapnecht because like they were in, and that's, that's a, another reason why I'm actually not as like, I, I, I'm not as worried about America right now versus Weimar Germany because they, they had just, they were putting, you know, they were flying by the seat of their pants. They were putting together a government on the fly, basically. So they had a, a lot more opportunity to fly off the rails. But with that said, you you see what's going to happen when, frankly, if the protesters don't go home, you're going to get a Scheidemann-Ebert reaction. It'll, it doesn't take very long. It's like, like I, that's why I didn't focus too much on the late 20s and the rise of the Nazi party, because you know, that, that's a whole, that has to do with a lot of other factors. My point is that you don't have to like go all the way to the Nazi party to see what social unrest that's incentivized by things like a pandemic. You know, you, you don't have to go that far to see the, see what those effects are. You see them within a couple months. Yeah. And I think a case could be made that the 
chaos of the Spartacist uprising and how it was put down and everything that potentially that that prevented the Weimar government from really ever having a chance, even even yeah. though the, in the short term, you know, that that uprising was put down. But it seems like that, that it never had a chance that there there would always be this polarized attitude going forward between the extreme right and the extreme left, wherein the kind of centrists were were not going to satisfy anybody, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And that's the thing is, I think, you know, also with the mid 20s, despite the hyperinflation, Germany actually was doing relatively well in the sense that the people, the regular people on the ground were were just trying to get back to their regular lives. But you know that the chaos of 1918, 1919, that was always in the back of their minds. They're not just going to forget that. And the and the trauma that's caused by losing loved ones to the flu into the war that's not going anywhere either. But you and, and that's what I think is so interesting is that if you look at like things like um, purchasing uh, records, like people were buying radios, people were going to the movies a lot. Like it was a very vibrant time culturally. Music was going really was going really well. There was a lots of um, I believe there was like a lot of a uh, cabaret going on. It was a very vibrant culture. Weimar Germany has talked about for its vibrant culture and for good reason. But I think what's missing from that is when you look at that, you see, I see it as an act of social psychological denial that everybody's just like, look, we don't want to deal with this anymore. But as soon as something comes up again, that reminds us of that, we're going to we're going to like do everything we can to tamp it down as fast as possible. And that's what allows for authoritarian regimes to rise so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I've been concerned about with COVID from very early on Mm -hmm. is once it became obvious that the disease, you know, is only lethal to a very small percentage of those infected. It seemed obvious to me that the real danger would be, Less so the disease itself, unless you're one of the unlucky, uh, you know, few percent of people who are very, very vulnerable to it. But the real danger came from the combination of how government authorities would deal with it and then how just kind of regular people psychologically mm-hmm. dealt with it. And then, you know, related to that, the economic fallout of all the shutdowns, which are going to only increase uh, people's psychological stress and all that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I really appreciated the point that you made throughout the episode a few times in different ways, the kind of point that's the point of most zombie movies, right? The idea is that the zombie plague isn't actually the biggest problem that (laughs) the biggest problem is the monsters on Maple street. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, and that, uh, that is a really, and I think that also uh, we got to add into that. The, the, uh, I, I really like that you bring up like the government responses because uh, being so bad in a lot of cases, but I think even more importantly, it, a lot of leaders are being seen as hypocrites, which you could say on one hand is a good thing. I mean, I'm not a fan of Gavin Newsom, my governor here in California. And I do think it's a good thing that we got that, you know, photo of him eating indoors with a bunch of lobbyists. I think that that's a great way to delegitimize a leader that I don't have much faith in. But the problem is that it doesn't just stop with voting out a leader. It, it actually can harm the faith of the American people in institutions in general, and just make it a lot easier for someone who's very anti-democratic to step in and take over. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, that's that's kind of the tragedy of our species is that when we're 
confronted with people running the state who are obviously corrupt or hypocritical or incompetent or some combination of all these things or whatever, that our response is not normally, well, maybe we don't need these people ruling over us. Our response is usually like, let's replace them with new rulers. Yeah. And the people who are the most effective at interviewing for that job of you know being the new rulers they're they're usually the worst people they're usually as i think you alluded to in the in the episode somewhere they're often those with kind of psychopathic tendencies that those are the people who are yeah the most able to convincingly to the people kind of say you know follow me listen to me and next thing you know you end up with like a a virulent dictator or something that you know, you look back on the old corrupt, incompetent government you had almost nostalgically. Like, you know, I'd, <laughs> yeah. I'd rather just have some corrupt, hypocrite dilettante um, yeah. <laughs> than, than a, like a true believer who's a complete cold-blooded monster. Yeah. And and like I said, it, I mean, like, like you just alluded to, but uh, like I said in the podcast, uh, there's a reason why you should be afraid uh, of psychopaths when a pandemic's hitting because a pandemic just raises everybody's fear. The only people who don't get afraid are psychopaths. That's actually a fact. Like the, you put a psychopath in um in a, one of those. Uh, well, you make them watch you know one of those old viral videos that like turn into somebody say like a, a monster jumping up on screen. You know they don't have a they don't have a physiological reaction. They're not afraid. And when everybody else is afraid, that is a very good time for a psychopath. Like in general, like they they have they have such an advantage. It's like. It's like beyond a home team advantage at that point, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, yeah, because they already just by the nature of politics, they already have a lot of advantages, you know. And I'm I'm a definite believer in the idea that while not every uh elite politician is a psychopath, that a much greater percentage of them are than is the case yeah. of just the general population. Like yeah. I, I absolutely believe that psychopaths are disproportionately represented the higher up you go in a power structure. Absolutely. No, I mean because they cuz they're really good at it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they're, they're, they're so well suited for leadership as awful as that sounds, but it's true. And th- again, that's why I real I, I feel bad still that I had to explicitly say in my own podcast, this is not my way of saying Donald Trump is Hitler. I mean, I, cause he's not, if anything, he's probably one of the first non-psychopath presidents we've had. He's just a complete narcissistic gas bag. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He's definitely probably the most narcissistic narcissistic president we've had. Yeah. But I, I've always thought of him that if anything, he's more likely to be a sociopath than a psychopath because yeah. he's got more of that just impulsiveness where he's his own worst enemy. Whereas yeah. if he was a psychopath, he would be much more calculating and methodical and you know, wouldn't shoot off at the mouth as recklessly as he often does. And yeah, he probably would be much more effective in terms of, you know, not necessarily doing good things, but in terms of being better at holding and wielding power if he were a psychopath. Yeah. And well, and I, I really like how um, uh, Jimmy Dore put it or has been putting it is that Trump just put an ugly face on what America was already doing, an ugly face and ugly deeds and stuff that like, he hasn't changed anything really. It's that all the stuff that was happening already under previous administrations just now has a disgusting human being, not even bothering to pretend (laughs) that it's uh, that these things are awful and happening. 
Yeah, yeah. Somebody, I forget who it was, one of the good leftists might have been might have been Jimmy Dore, might have been like Glenn Greenwald or somebody like that. Somebody had a really great concise tweet where they said something like, Liberals hate Trump because he makes American empire look undignified. <laughs> I love that. That is so good. And yeah, I mean, that just summed it up perfectly, you know, because somebody like Obama, who's so smooth and charming and calm and collected, you know, he can drone whoever he wants and you know, starve kids in Yemen and put kids in cages and whatever. And no one cares and no one talks about it. And the media just gives them a pass and turns a blind eye to all of it. Yeah. Um, But, but Trump is, you know, he's so crude and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that just like, and that's what sort of I see with, um, well, again, that's what, I mean, cause you can't say Adolf Hitler was smooth (laughs) to say the least. Um, but that's sort of where I do see uh, the danger of someone like Trump is that he has legitimized unsmoothness and made it palatable. Does that make sense? So you're saying, I don't know, that that he's kind of set precedents yeah. for kind of yes. coloring outside the lines that future people might take to much worse places than he did? Yeah, because he, yeah, like he's not a believer in anything. I, I mean, like a true believer of of some of you know of various ideas but is able to be uh, this makes sense i i feel like what i'm worried about is someone who is able to be smooth but doesn't sand the edges does that make sense right so someone who has trump's willingness to kind of break precedents and and break sort of the basic rules of civility of the system yeah but who is less clumsy than he is and who like you said is is an actual zealot yes in some sort of cause and not just sort of a a vague narcissist who just sort of panders to particular groups yeah exactly somebody who can um take advantage of the polarization that that has essentially been set in place and i think that that's what happened in weimar germany ultimately was that polarization was set in place and then just the right guy, quote unquote, came along and was able to, you know, take advantage of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, it might be a really positive thing that the election was as close as it was. Yeah. That like the Congress is still very divided and all that, because, you know, what terrifies me is the possibility of someone coming along in our current era who's actually able to pull off like a 62% 62% landslide popular vote victory. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, pull off one of those victories where he wins like 49 states and has giant majorities of his party in Congress, a la FDR 1932, you know, something like that. Or Reagan in 1984. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although, although there, I think they didn't, I think they only had the Senate, but not the House. Yes. Yeah. I believe but, you're right. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, it was a a presidential landslide for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, or or Lyndon Johnson in '64. There's another one. Sure. Where yeah. you know somebody who's able to get that much um, support and who had you know dominating majorities in Congress in both houses in our current situation, I I would be very, very worried about that. You know, and, and yeah, maybe maybe gridlock and that sort of stuff is the best we could hope for. I was gonna say like right now specifically uh, during a pandemic, the best we can hope for is gridlock. I mean, I really do believe that because, well, on certain things, I mean, on other things, it'd be nice if we could have some sort of consensus on, on, uh, 
on what to do. But uh, yeah, generally speaking, I think when we're, it really does feel like when you're on a, a sort of knife's edge, like we are right now, that I, the best you can uh, hope for is gridlock. Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a Taoist, so I very much, yeah. you know, all those <laughs> ideas of like sometimes the best thing to do is to do nothing. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I, you know, to bring it back to you know talking about that book I cited, Meltdown, uh, about tightly coupled systems and whatnot. The story of oh, I am blanking on his name, and I wish I wasn't because he is a hero. But that Soviet colonel or lieutenant right, colonel right. who didn't do anything, he could he thought that the there were you know, ICBMs coming towards, you know, Moscow. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go with my gut on this and not do anything. And by not doing anything, he saved the world. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of situations. It's counterintuitive, but they're obviously not all situations, but there's a lot more situations than people think where not doing anything might actually be the best option relative to doing things. If, all the things you're thinking about doing are going to be counterproductive and make the situation worse. And that seems to be one of those things, again, sort of a defect of us as, as social primates where we kind of default sort of prefer the person who is, you know, the leader of action, the one who's like, I have a plan and let's do things and decisive, aggressive leadership, all that sort of stuff. We're kind of, Partly, I think, pre-wired and partly we're sort of told and indoctrinated that action is always preferable to inaction from mm-hmm. leaders. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so sure that's always the case. You know, there's, yeah. there's obviously certain situations where action uh, is a good thing if it's the right action that's actually going to produce good results. But, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a stupid analogy, but one of the ways I, I've sometimes put it to my students when talking about this sort of thing is like, you know, history books tend to glorify decisive, energetic leaders. But wouldn't we have been a lot better off if Genghis Khan was a little bit indecisive and a little less energetic? Wouldn't we be better off if Hitler was a little bit indecisive and a little less energetic and getting stuff done? And, you know, and I've also used the kind of silly example, but basically when someone's like, oh, we don't have time to, to think and plan and analyze, we have to act indecisive. Like, what if you saw a building on fire and Someone's like, quick, do something. And there happens to be a container of liquid nearby. And so they're like, oh, we have no time to think or whatever. Grab that stuff and dump it on the fire. But what if that container was full of gasoline rather exactly, than water yeah. or something like this? And like you you doing some quick, decisive action without thinking things through and figuring out what's really going on, you're making the problem worse. Well, it's sort of like that uh, – um the the rule, essentially, that unless you're a lifeguard, you shouldn't try to save a drowning person. Because they're going to drown you too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just don't. Yeah. And I think that right now uh, we definitely should be glorifying in action. I just, I really think so. I, I, I <laughs> as weird as that sounds, but uh, I think, and as counterintuitive as it is, I think you're right. I think that we need to, you know, maybe take a, take a breath, if you will. And here's a question though that I actually haven't really thought about until just now, was it even possible to take a breath, proverbially speaking, in Weimar, Germany? I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if it was possible because everything was happening so quickly. Right. Yeah. It's tricky because for a leader, sometimes doing nothing is the hardest thing politically. Yeah. Because it, it would take a leader with great powers of persuasion 
and with a lot of legitimacy uh, in the eyes of the population to say, all right, we're just going to kind of take a breather and, yeah. and not do stuff. Um, because as soon as a leader does that, a huge amount of public opinion from various corners is going to be saying, oh, you know, he's not doing anything. He needs to do more or whatever like that. And, you know, would, would the people even stand for a leader who takes a more hands-off approach to a big problem or something? I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, I, I, it, it'd be one of the, and that's the thing that like, I'm, I, I have to wonder, like, what if they had just ignored Leapnecht and, uh, and Luxembourg and the Spartacists, they weren't a significant force. They were a significant rhetorical force. And they did do, they, they did do some pretty, you know, heinous things that most people wouldn't like, like occupy, you know, the Vorvorts building or, you know, engage in pitch street battles and whatnot. But at the same time, I feel like taking the decisive action to have them killed. And I do believe that it was sort of a situation where Scheidemann and uh, Ebert knew what was they 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 were like they're they're they weren't like saying hey i want you to extrajudicially assassinate these people but they weren't going to say don't do that you know what i mean so i i i think they i i think by making that decision they in a lot of ways help seal the fate of germany as well just by like sort of making it okay to crush political dissidents in that way well kind of coming back full circle big picture all that is there anything that we haven't covered that um, stands out to you as as important or interesting or anything like that, either uh, in terms of the story of the Spanish flu pandemic itself or in terms of, you know, its its relevance to recent history and current events and, you know, lessons we have and haven't learned from all that stuff or both or just any, anything we haven't really dug into that stands out to you as as an important part of this whole thing. I think we we've pretty much covered it. I mean, I just uh, I, I I really want to you know just again if I if I can impart any sort of message onto people is take a breath. Like that's really the best thing we can do is take a breath, hunker down as best we can. You know, because our we are our own worst enemy. It's not COVID. It's not. President Biden, President Trump, it's we are our own worst enemy and that we need to sort of come to grips with that, I think. I think that is very, very wise advice. So um, again, I'll recommend to everybody History Impossible and this episode we've been talking about in particular, it is one of the best and most important podcast episodes of any podcast that I've listened to uh, in 2020. So highly Thank recommend you for saying so. Yeah. And, you know, my hat's off to you for, I know the amount of work and research and prep and everything that went into the episode. That was painful. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know how much I put into a four and a half hour episode. So, you know, figure it's, it's 50% uh, bigger than that. So um, anything else you, you want to, you want to plug or any stuff like that? Uh, well, not really. I mean, for the rest of this year, I, I have an interview with uh, the very talented Aaron Sabarium who wrote uh, a piece called the Weimarization of the American Republic. It was very strange to see that you might've seen me share that on social media. Um, but it was like, he, he came to a frighteningly similar conclusion to, to me uh, though, from a more like contemporary perspective. Um, so I, I didn't inter- I actually did a Skype interview with him the other, uh, the other week. So that's coming out soon. I'm hoping to get maybe one more episode out before the end of 2020. 
Uh, if that can't happen, no worries, obviously. But in 2021, I'm going to be starting my first full-length series uh, specifically about the Nazis, again, actually, uh, but in how they made use of Muslims in the Balkans. It's a very interesting story, very very dark story, but it's a very interesting story. Um, and I'm really excited to finally get started on that because that was one of my first stories I ever wanted to tell when coming up with the idea of History Impossible. Cool. That all sounds really interesting, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. That's That uh, last topic there is something I have no clue about, so I'm a blank slate as far as that goes. So looking forward to it. Well, it's been really cool talking to you, and I appreciate your time, and, and thanks for coming on, and thanks for doing this episode. No worries, man. Let's do it again. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level. And you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. 
Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.